Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Latin American History Podcast, Episode 45, The Conquest of Mexico, Part 9. Today we carry on with the story of Hernán Cortés and the conquest of Mexico. We've reached the point where most accounts stop, but in reality, the conquest was only just starting. The hardest bit was done, but the Spanish only controlled a small fraction of the territory which will form the North American and Central American part of their empire. Cortes and his men still had plenty of adventures ahead of them. First, though, he had to secure his position and start rebuilding a Spanish colony from the rubble of the Aztec Empire. This episode will cover the years 1522 to 1524, the first two years after the surrender of Tenochtitlan, and the time where Cortes was busy securing his position. In one of his previous letters sent back to the king, Cortes had described just how amazing Tenochtitlan was. He seems to have been in awe of it, and so it made sense that he would make it his capital. Immediately after the conquest, however, he seemed reluctant to. He set himself up in Coyoacán, a town on the southern shore of the lake, within sight of Tenochtitlan, but separated by the water. It appeared that this is where he would build his new city. However, after a few weeks he changed his mind, and after knocking down the great temples on Tenochtitlan's main square, he decided to follow the Aztec lead, and make that the focus of what would become Mexico City. Cortes had two immediate priorities – once he had conquered Tenochtitlan. The first was to collect as much valuable metal as he could. This would allow him to keep his men happy. They had risked their lives and now expected to be rewarded, as did the king back in Spain. The king demanded a fifth of all gold obtained in the Americas, and so Cortes needed to send him this promptly to demonstrate his goodwill and loyalty. He wanted to send a lot to impress on the king just how significant Cortes's achievement was. Of course, he also wanted to enrich himself as much as possible. Within days, Cortes had established a foundry to melt down Aztec gold statues into bars. He first set this up within what had been Moctezuma's father's palace, but later the same year he moved it to Coyoacán. The desire for gold also influenced how he treated Cuauhtémoc, the captured Aztec emperor. At first he was treated relatively well, but this soon changed. 
Despite their great wealth and power, the Aztec did not produce much gold themselves, and while the metal was valued, it wasn't as important in their culture as it was to the Europeans. They did have significant amounts of the stuff, but not as much as the Spaniards had thought or hoped. This led Cortes to think that there were stashes of gold being hidden somewhere, and Cuauhtémoc was tortured to make him reveal the imaginary hidden gold's location. Cortes's second priority was to establish an effective government, and what better way to do this than to just use the existing one? We tend to think of conquests as complete and abrupt changes, with the invaders completely dispossessing the invaded and taking over the governing completely. This is sometimes what happens. We saw it happen in the Caribbean, for example. When faced with a complex state, however, there are a number of advantages to co-opting existing governmental structures. The Aztec elite knew how to run central Mexico, although obviously they would have to take count of the changes brought by the war and disease. They knew where the population was, how much tax it could produce, and they had the infrastructure in place to collect it. They had experience governing this population, and that meant everything from simple facts like speaking the language needed to interact with the population, to already having people employed and experienced in the actual day-to-day act of governing. Related to this was the fact that the Spanish simply did not have the number of people required to administer such a large and populated area, even if they'd wanted to. Retaining existing government also had the effect of reducing the risk of rebellion. Much of the Aztec elite were allowed to keep their status, and this gave them an incentive to accept the Spanish, even if they weren't completely happy with it, and they had to accept a new Spanish elite above them. Make no mistake, this would have been a huge and unhappy change for the general population, but at least by keeping existing structures in place, this change was lessened slightly, and so they too were less likely to rebel. So Cuauhtémoc was allowed to keep his title, although in real terms he had no power, and was effectively a prisoner. As we shall see next episode, this arrangement also didn't last very long. The indigenous government as a whole lasted a lot longer, however. The colony, which will come to be known as New Spain, was run by a Spanish administrator. Central Tenochtitlan soon became a city within a city. Around the main square, blocks of Spanish buildings sprung up in a grid pattern. Surrounding them on the island, however, were the remains of the Aztec city. The Spaniards largely lived in their area, and the Aztec lived in theirs. The Spanish section was also governed by Spaniards, but the surrounding band of city where the Aztec population lived was ruled by their own government. Of course, this was ultimately answerable to the Spanish. But amazingly, this government lasted 300 years, right up until the 1800s. To illustrate the conversion 
of Aztec governing elites into Spanish ones, let's have a look at the life of Moctezuma's nephew, Diego de Alvarado Juanitzin. Before the conquest, he was the Tlatoani, or ruler, of a small city near Lake Texcoco. After the conquest, he was held captive at Cuauhtémoc, but was later released and allowed to retain his position. He was baptised, with de Alvarado being his sponsor, hence taking his name, and later he was made the first Tlatoani of Tenochtitlan in 1539. This was not unique. Most, if not all, it's hard to say for certain, of the governors of Tenochtitlan, including the very first one immediately after the conquest, up until around the year 1600, were Mexica. So too were the Alcaldes, the two governors of the sub-councils, which sat below the city governor in the organisation of Tenochtitlan. Soon after the surrender, Cortes introduced the encomienda system, and he started out handing land to his men, along with indigenous people to work it. While the Spaniards were always at the front of the queue, as part of his drive to incorporate the Aztec elite, a few of these were given encomiendas of their own as well. Of course, one political structure that couldn't remain was that of the priests. We already know how fiercely Catholic the Spanish were at the time, and how much they hated the Aztec religion. In order to help Christianize the city, Cortes invited the Franciscan Order of Monks over to Tenochtitlan. They started arriving in 1524, and soon there were loads of them there. To illustrate how important Cortes considered their mission, they were given a building right on the Zocalo. Initially, they took up this offer, but soon they decided to relocate out to the Aztec parts of the city, something which confused the rest of the Spaniards, who preferred to stick to their safe bubble. They set about converting the population, and envisioned the building of a new Rome. They saw this as the future heart of Christianity in the Americas, and I think they literally wanted to build it in Rome's image. They started knocking down the small neighbourhood temples in the Aztec part of the city, and they built churches on top of the rubble. They gave these churches the same names as the churches in Rome. Speaking of names, it will be a long process, but the renaming of Tenochtitlan to Mexico City began almost immediately. In his letter to the king sent in 1522, just after the conquest, Cortes refers to the land under Spanish control outside of the city as Mexico, but he doesn't give this name to the city itself. It took until the 1530s for Mexico to have largely replaced the name Tenochtitlan when referring to the city, although Tenochtitlan does appear in Spanish documents occasionally, until at least 1600. When it came to his own affairs, Cortes was not living up to the Christian ideals he was encouraging the Mexica to embrace. Having been pressured into finally marrying Velázquez's sister-in-law, Catalina Suárez, back in Cuba, before promptly running off to Mexico and leaving her behind, he finally brought her over to Tenochtitlan. 
Of course, he hadn't treated her very well to begin with, and now that he and Velasquez were openly hostile to each other, things must have been really awkward. Even more awkward were the affairs he was having with indigenous women, most notably La Malinche. In total, Cortes will end up having 12 children, only three of which came from marriage, and many of them being born by indigenous women. At this point, however, his antics hadn't resulted in any children being born, but when Catalina arrived, La Malinche was pregnant. It's unclear if Catalina knew that a baby was arriving, and if so, that Cortes was the father. She didn't live, however, to see the birth. Just a few months after arriving in Mexico, she died, in unclear circumstances. We know that her death did raise eyebrows and lead to rumours at the time, but it was never gotten to the bottom of. While Cortes would move on to other women, a son he had with La Malinche, who was called Martin Cortes, was said to be his favourite. In 1530, he would marry a Spanish noblewoman and have a son also named Martin Cortes. This new Martin would become his official heir and inheritor, but apparently he was never as popular in Cortes's eyes as the son of La Malinche. While Cortes was setting up the government of his new territory, the king back in Spain had to make the macro decisions of how this area would be incorporated into the wider empire. The Caribbean had a viceroy, Velázquez, and what with the dispute between Velázquez and Cortes, would Mexico become part of the viceroy of the Indies? Or would Cortes report directly to him? The king decided to favour Cortes and not incorporate Mexico into the Indies, but he decided to hedge his bets. Cortes was allowed to rule it, which meant that Velázquez had effectively lost the dispute. Cortes's actions had been legitimated. For the moment, no viceroyalty was set up, and while this gave Cortes freedom and power in the short term, in the long term, if the king decided that Cortes was getting too powerful, he could set one up and send someone of his own choosing to rule it. He will decide to do this a few years later in 1528, when he set up what's called an Audencia, and sent a man named de Guzman to run it. We will hear a bit more about de Guzman later in this episode. Cortes's power did not go completely unchallenged, however. Last episode, I mentioned how the governor of Jamaica attempted to found a colony of his own in Mexico. He was the one who sent a succession of ships only for the crews to join Cortes each time they arrived. His name was Francisco de Garay, and he wasn't ready to give up yet. He decided to focus on an area of the coast further north than Veracruz, and he sought backing from the king. Still not completely sure if he wanted Cortes to rule unchecked, the king did not reject his proposal and gave him vague rights to colonise an area north of Cortes's conquests. The problem was that this was all new and largely unknown land to the Spanish, 
and the king was not in a position to define boundaries. This obviously created potential for conflict, as both Cortes and Garay tried to argue that their territory extended as far as possible, and Cortes rejected the idea that Garay had any right to colonise at all. Perhaps the king wanted to watch this play out, as he decided how much land and power to give to Cortes. This time, Garay set off himself, and he took 600 men with him. This prompted Cortes to appeal to the king, and he managed to persuade him that his rights were being infringed upon. Soon after Garay arrived, word came from Spain that the king was giving Cortes control of Mexico for now. Garay then decided to travel to Tenochtitlan to meet with Cortes and have one last crack at convincing him to allow a new colony to the north. Three days after his arrival, however, he died. The story of Garay's attempt to muscle in to Mexico are now an unimportant and forgotten part of the story of the conquest. The episode is interesting, however, for a couple of reasons. It shows how unsure the king was about how to manage Cortes and Mexico. And it also shows that Cortes could not just relax. There were no shortage of ambitious Spaniards who wanted to challenge him. In fact, challenges to his authority will be one of the main themes for the rest of this series. Potential challenges could come from within his own men, as well as from outside. Cortes wanted to expand his control in Mexico for his own reasons, but he also needed to make sure that his soldiers felt suitably rewarded and enriched after the risks they had taken during the conquest. It seems hard to believe considering the might of the Aztec Empire, but it suggested that after dividing up the land and the gold, there was not enough to go round. Of course the king would collect his royal fifth and the highest-ranking members of Cortes's army demanded large amounts of treasure. There was the co-opted Aztec elite to keep happy, and so while their encomienda grants wouldn't have taken priority over those of important Spaniards, it did mean that there was less land to give to ordinary soldiers. Plenty of gold had flowed into the Aztec Empire. However, as I mentioned earlier, they were not a gold or silver producing people, and there was less in Tenochtitlan than the Spaniards had expected. There was also the fact that many of Cortes's men were ambitious, and even if they had become rich, some wanted to do as he had done, albeit on a lesser scale. They wanted to make a name for themselves by leading conquests. All of this gave Cortes a powerful incentive to authorise the expansion of Spanish territory. It was his most powerful means of keeping his men happy. In the first two years after the conquest, Cortes authorised three campaigns. The first was led by Sandoval, the man who had been left in charge of Villarica and who had confronted Narvaez there. His task was to return to the coast of Veracruz and shore up Spanish control there. This was a relatively easy task as the job had already been partially done during the conquest and Sandoval quickly brought the surrounding peoples under Spanish control. Almost simultaneously, 
A man named Juan Rodriguez de Villafuerte set off in the opposite direction, west of Tenochtitlan, to what is today the state of Colima. Now not much is known about Villafuerte, or the people he went to conquer. We do know that they were called the Coyiman, from which the name Colima derives. Sometimes they are also called the Tecos. They had a fairly powerful state, ruled by a king of sorts, and they were on the rise in the years leading up to the Spanish arrival. They occupied a tough neighbourhood, with the Aztec to their east, and the powerful Perepecha empire to their north. Our knowledge of this is very hazy, but sometime around 1480, the Perepecha invaded Coyiman territory, and sparked a long war, which the Coyiman led by their king, Golimotl, managed to win. Like the Perepecha, Villafuerte also found Golimotl and his people to be skilled fighters, and he was defeated in battle twice, first at a place called Troyes, and then at a place called Tecoman. Cortes decided to send in Sandoval, and gave him an army. Sandoval succeeded, where Villafuerte had not. He marched straight to the Pacific Ocean, and then moved into Coyiman territory, where he fought a battle against Colimotl and won. We don't know much about this battle, but we do know that Sandoval was ruthless, and that it turned into a massacre. Once this was done, Sandoval founded the town of Villa de Colima, and he then marched up the coastline in search of a place to found a port. After this, he returned to Tenochtitlan to report back to Cortes, who sent one of his relatives to take up the position of mayor and govern the 120 settlers Sandoval had left behind. The conquest of Colima was motivated by the desire to establish a base on the South Sea. If you cast your mind back to the episodes on Balboa in Panama, you will remember that he had discovered the Pacific and named it the South Sea a few years before. By this time, it was largely accepted that the Americas were a previously unknown continent, and not Asia. However, discovering the Indies was of course the original plan, and its spices had not become any less valuable. It was therefore still theorised that Asia could be reached and exploited, and that it could be fairly close. This was also what was motivating explorers to chart the east coast of the Americas as they looked for a sea passage that would take them into the South Sea. It's likely then that Cortes may have harboured ambitions to explore the Pacific and become the first European to find the western route to Asia, although he doesn't say this in any of his writings to my knowledge. Cortes's third campaign was also in the direction of the Pacific, but it was not motivated by Asia. Instead, he was after more immediate prizes. He had learned from the Aztec that the Perepecha were Mesoamerica's premier producers of gold and its finest metalsmiths. Conquering them would provide him with the riches he needed to keep his men happy. Luckily for him, this would prove remarkably easy. The Perepecha 
were perhaps the second most powerful people in Mesoamerica at the time. The Aztec never managed to conquer them, and you may remember them from the episodes on the Aztec as the people who managed to repel an invasion, inflicting on the Aztec their only real defeat before the conquest. The Parepecha were an interesting people. They had occupied the area for around 500 years, but their origins are mysterious. While they incorporated some aspects of the shared Mesoamerican culture, such as the ball game, they were different. For example, they did not use the model of empire that their neighbours did, and instead of conquering other city-states and making them tributaries, they ruled their land directly. They themselves had started off as a collection of city-states sharing a culture, but they were united into one cohesive whole by a leader called Tariakuri in the late 1300s. Their language was an isolate, meaning that it was not related to any others in Mesoamerica as far as we can tell. This makes it hard to tell where they came from. Some people believe that they were a Chichimec people, and like the Aztec, had lived a nomadic lifestyle in the north, before migrating down and embracing a settled urban life. Others, however, believe that they may have come from much further afield. Perepecha means latecomers, and after the conquest, the Spanish tried to work out where they were from. The Spanish interviewed them about their beliefs, and together they drew up a map. This map suggested that they had come all the way from Peru. Now, this document is generally regarded as not very reliable. The Spanish lack knowledge of the geography of the Americas, and things probably got confused in translation. There are a number of features on the map which simply don't exist. The theory might actually be true, however. There are weak but existing comparisons to be made with South American groups when it comes to the language and the architecture. You might also remember that in the ancient Mexico episodes, I mentioned that there's a suggestion that the El Opeño culture, long, long before this, and inhabiting a similar part of Mexico, may have had trading links as far south as Ecuador. Wherever they were originally from, they now face the same problem as all the Mesoamerican peoples. What to do about these strange people who had turned up and turned the local geopolitics on its head? As well as this map, and as they did with the Aztec and the Tlaxcalans, Spanish monks, with the help of indigenous people, produced a book which gave both a fascinating ethnographic account of the pre-contact culture and told their side of the conquest. This book is known as The Relation of Michoacan, and this is the story it tells of the Spanish arrival in Mexico. Apparently, Moctezuma sent ten messengers to the Parepecha leader. He was a man named Zuangua, and his capital was Tashimaroa. The messengers brought with them gifts of gold and colourful feathers. They told Zuangua 
about the Spanish and their Tlaxcalan allies. But being their enemies, the Perepacha thought that this must be an Aztec trap. They sent some men back to Tenochtitlan with the messengers to see if it was true. And they also found some Otomi people who they asked about it. These Otomi said it was true and that the Aztec were conquered. They told them that the whole of Mexico was full of bodies and that they wanted to go back to Tashimaroa to become subjects of the Perepature. They saw this as their best bet of avoiding the Spanish. The Perepature discussed the situation. We are told that they wondered where the Spanish came from and said where else but the sky. Then their scouts returned from Tenochtitlan and said that the Spanish were there with the Tlaxcalans. They were told that the Spanish wanted to make war on them. Whether the scouts brought it back with them, or whether it came via the movement of refugees, disease then struck and it killed Zuangua. He was replaced with the no more easier to pronounce Tangashwan II. Next, a lone Spaniard arrived in Tashimaroa and spent a couple of days there. Soon after, three more came, and all of these were on horses, which were of course completely new to the Perepature. Tangashwan welcomed them by bringing out as many people and soldiers as he could to see if this would intimidate them. He gave the Spaniards gifts including women, to take as wives. Now when I spoke about the Perepature in previous episodes, I referred to them with a different name. This is the name you see pretty much everywhere. The Tarascans. While researching this episode, I've discovered that the origins of that name are actually derogatory. In Perepature, it means father-in-law, and it had its origin in this very moment. The Spanish, post-conquest, used it to taunt them, as they had given their daughters to be wives. There are still Perepature people living in Mexico today, and as I have absolutely no idea whether they find the word offensive or not, I've decided not to use it. But, seeing as pretty much everyone else does, if you want to find out any more information about them, you're better off searching for that for Perepature. Anyway, soon four more Spaniards arrived and were also given wives. They brought with them news of the defeat of the Coyi man just to the south. Next came word that the main force, led by Deolid, had arrived at the Empire's border. The new emperor did not know what to do and so he gathered together all the senior men of the empire to ask their opinion. They told him that it was his job to decide. He chose to start gathering his army, telling them to meet him at the capital. Despite this, the emperor wasn't sure what to do, and he decided to sacrifice 800 people so that the gods might stop the Spanish from arriving. When it became obvious that they were not stopping, he panicked and hid on an island in a nearby lake. 
Lacking any instructions, when Olid arrived and did not show hostility, he was housed there by the population as a guest, and when he asked to see the emperor, they told him that he had drowned. It wasn't long, however, before Olid started asking for gold and destroying the religious statues. Despite this, after hearing there had been no violence, the king decided to come back, and then nothing really happened. The Perepeja did not fight back, and the Spaniards did not start properly conquering them. A strange arrangement arose, where both the Perepeja Emperor and Cortes were somehow both in charge, and the population paid taxes to both. Olid went back to Tenochtitlan and reported that the Perepeja had been defeated. Meanwhile, the emperor accepted the Spaniards taxing his population and trying to convert them, and so things were allowed to continue on, sort of, as normal. Things will change in a few years, however. This is skipping ahead of the time frame for this episode, but I may as well finish this story off now. When the king set up his Audencia and sent Nuno de Guzman to rule it, he took a different approach. He was not happy with the loose control that had been established, and he wanted more gold. In 1530, six years after Olid had first arrived there, de Guzman decided to crack down. What followed was a reign of terror, with Tangashwan being killed, along with many others. It was too late to resist at this point, and so their empire was now properly over. Next time, we'll follow de Alvarado as he goes off on a conquest of his own against the Maya down in Guatemala. It may be a while until that episode comes out, however. In a couple of weeks, I'm going on a holiday, and I won't be home until February. There is a very small chance that I find the time and motivation to release an episode while I'm away. But, realistically, it probably won't happen until I get back. When I do get back, though, I hope to be getting episodes out a bit more regularly than I have been doing recently. So, until then, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at HistoryLatinAM, and if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash 
M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T photo. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.